Beginning in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 1, says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, of the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. The seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, And the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. If you remember, a cubit's about a foot and a half, so it's about twenty-two feet deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth. For 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made the wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. As we look at it here this morning, some of the things that we read last week, as well as some of the things that we read this week, I wanted to kind of deal with all it all together a little bit in, in dealing with the reality of the flood and, the, and of Noah's Ark. We want to look at kind of the proof of the flood that we see all around us and within Scripture itself. And then also we want to think through some of the things that happen in regards to the flood. But you know what? In doing so, I also want to keep at the forefront of this idea the recognition of what the main purpose in our understanding of the flood is. And that is seeing both the judgment of God and the deliverance as it points toward Jesus Christ. Just like with the judgment during Noah's time, 
There is also a way of salvation. That's what we see in Christ also, is that way of salvation, so that we escape that final judgment. In the New Testament, when it points to Noah, in the time of Noah, and the flood, it always makes that comparison. Just as in the days of Noah, people were going on eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, right up until the time when they were swept away in that judgment. And only eight people were delivered in the ark. It constantly points to that warning. The warning is as is as fresh to us as it was in the days of Noah. Because the Bible takes this event in the days of Noah and says, look, there's another judgment coming. Be ready. you got to be trusting. When we start to talk about a lot of the little details of the flood and stuff, we always want to do it against the backdrop of this understanding that it is as it's a declaration of judgment and redemption through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, with that in mind, let's consider the different aspects that we want to look at this morning concerning the flood. With the flood, the first thing that we want to look at is the proof. Now, as we look at the proof of the flood, we want to deal with it in three different areas. We're going to deal with it biblically. We're going to deal with it physically as we look at our physical world in which we live. And we're also going to look at it socially as well. And biblically, we look through the passage that we're reading through right now. There's a lot of universal language in there. Words like every and all universal terms are used over 60 times in this passage. And after the flood, when he's starting over with the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives, it declares again that all of the descendants of mankind would find their heritage in those three sons. And so the Bible makes no bones about it that it is all universal. It was a universal flood. It It impacted all the people on the earth, the eight that were saved, and then all the rest of them that were destroyed. And then our heritage is also goes back to those three people. So all of the language of the Bible talks about this universal um, flood. Throughout the rest of the Bible, we also see that in the New Testament, Jesus spoke of it as a literal event. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. You see, Jesus refers to it as an, as an actual event. I wouldn't actually have any problem with the Bible using uh, stories that were of the nature of legend or mythology if the Bible itself acted like they were legends or myths. Because it is possible to get good meaning or good teaching out of something that is a legend or a myth. Those are tools within our language that we can use, kind of like allegories or things like that. But the Bible continually points to its events that is told us in the New Testament as actual historical events. In Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 7, it holds Noah up as an example of faith. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Peter did it in both of his epistles. In uh, his first epistle, in chapter 3 and verse 20, it says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And then in his second epistle, in chapter 3, he also says, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, then he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. There's kind of two main things that people have objections with, or or that people look at this and, and kind of attribute it to legend or mythology. 
One is the ark itself, and the other one is the flood. When you consider the ark, and they say, well, there's so many species on the earth, there's no way. Um, when you start doing the math, it's actually very feasible. The ark was large. In fact, if we compare it to a football field, much larger than a football field. I did it with the kids in my Sunday school class one time. We measured out the ark. It ends up being about 73 feet wide, 400 and, what was it, 470 feet long or something like that. We started at the stop sign out on the corner, and you had to go almost to the end of our building that way for the width. It was 44 feet tall, three floors, God told them to make to house all the animals and stuff in and the food that they would have to take for them. And so we started at the edge of the alley and we went walking down the alley measuring to get to the length of the ark. And you know where it got us is from the end of the pavement to just past Siltman's house on the next block. That is one big boat. And when you start looking at the, the creatures that have to get put in the, in the boat, the species that they have with on, within the world, there are a lot of species in the world, but you know what? The majority of them are sea creatures, so they didn't have to get put in the ark to begin with. Now, what does our mind obviously go to? When we start thinking of Noah and putting all these animals on the, on the ark, what are the first animals that you picture going up that ramp? The elephants, the giraffes, the T-Rex, right? All those big animals. Those are the big animals, and that's why they stand out to us. But if you think about it, most of our species on the earth are actually quite small. In fact, the average size animal is about the size of a house cat. If you think about that average, you can fit a lot of creatures in there. Even in your larger animals, if you're taking them for the purpose of repopulating the earth, which ones are you going to take? The younger ones, because they're going to have more years of having offspring, repopulating the earth. They're going to be probably a better chance of having good, healthy animals there. And not only that, they're going to be a little smaller. You know, there's going to be some wisdom, obviously, in this. In fact, the wisdom didn't have to be all Noah's because God brought the animals to Noah to load upon the ark. And so when you get down to it, it basically boils into this. The size of the ark is about the size of 560 boxcars of storage on that ark. When they start loading up all those creatures and stuff into the ark, it looks like you could hold what God told them to carry in about 56% of the ark. Wow, think about that. Just over half of the ark, which you still need some of the ark because you need chunk for food, too, to feed all those animals during that time. Although there are issues, it's curious because, you know, it's a little over a year that they were on the ark. What about animals that hibernate? And somebody's even speculated that, you know, maybe God had some of the other animals hibernate during this thing as well. Which, if I was no, I'd be so grateful of that if he did. <laughs> so you're going to fill up half of the ark with animals. You're going to fill up another chunk of it with food. And, and hopefully enough left, they have a little room to get away from the animals from time to time. But the point is this. When we look at the size of the ark and the amount of animals and things that we're going to fit on there, the math actually works. Who'd have thunk, right? But as we look at it, there's, there's the biblical evidence. The Bible repeatedly points to the flood and Noah's Ark as historical events. Well, what about the physical evidence? The things that we see around us. I heard a professor one time make a statement that I thought was an awesome statement. We have two kinds of revelation. You know, the Bible tells us the things that God created is a revelation of himself. And Romans chapter 1 talks about that a little bit. It says we're without excuse because we can see the existence of God and his power and his, and his Godhead through those things. But we also have his specific revelation. So the general revelation of creation and his specific revelation given to us within his word. Without his word, we wouldn't know the specific things like our need for salvation and how to experience salvation, the fact that Christ died on the cross for us. We need his specific revelation for that. But this professor made this point. He said God's specific revelation 
and his general revelation never disagree. Our understanding of them might be clouded from time to time, but they actually never disagree. Now what that means is, if God's word is true, and we know it is, and some major event like this happened, we should be able to see evidence that it has happened on the earth that we live in. And we absolutely have. In Psalm 104, verses 6 through 9, it says, You covered it with the deep, as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. Now, notice how it describes what happened at the flood. God covered it with water, and then he had the waters come off. He raised the mountains and he lowered the valleys. That's how he made the water come off. Do we see evidence of that in our world? All over it. The Grand Canyon. Universalism and evolution will tell you that over a long, long, long period of time, that river cut that canyon. It's impossible. But when you look at the Grand Canyon, from what I understand, if you measure the canyon at the top and then you take the water in the Colorado River below and you spread it out to the width of the canyon at the top, it evaporates. It's not enough water. It could not ever have carved that canyon. But if the entire world is covered with a flood and mountains start to push up and valleys, the oceans start to sink and you've got all that water running off, that would answer for a Grand Canyon very easily. But there's not only that. Did you know that we got fish fossils, whale fossils, clam fossils, oyster fossils, marine biology on the top of all of our mountains? This little uh, fossil of a fish here that I'm putting on the screen right now, that is from the tops of the Andes Mountains. And, and they're all over the place. The, top, the upper levels of Mount Everest, right, which is what, 29,000 and some feet high, is made of ground that has obviously been laid down by water. And there's clam bed fossils, I believe it was, that was found up on top of Mount Everest as well. The Himalayan mountains have fossils. The, when we went on a trip in Rapid City, South Dakota, and we went through the Black Hills, the bus driver had found a fossil, and he sent it in to be tested at the university, and they sent it back to him and said, you found a fossil of a shark tooth. Shark tooth were 800 miles from the closest ocean. And we're up in the hills, not down in the, down in the lowlands. That's found all over the world. It's kind of interesting. I thought, well, if this stuff is found all over the world, and it is, then I did a little bit of Google work and I said, well, what are they saying about it? Because they're quick to point out that it wasn't ever a global flood. They can't, can't give in to that. But, well, then what was it? This was an article that I found in the New York Times. It's back in 1987. I think it was March 12th or so. It says, scientists have found fossils of whales and other marine animals in mountain sediments in the Andes indicating that the South American mountain chain rose very rapidly from the sea among the fossils. The scientists reported bringing back were the bones of whales and other marine animals found at altitudes of more than 5,000 feet. Now, 5,000 feet is a long way up there, but remember, we have more than that, 29,000 feet up on Mount Everest. Dr. Novacek said, We found the oyster beds and sand dollars just beneath the lowest sediments containing the land animals. At that point, the water was shallow and receding rapidly. A time of transition from sea to land as the land was thrust by magma and the movement of the tectonic plates. In more recent sediments, the group found species related to modern rodents, porcupines, rhinoceroses, and camels. They found this up on top of the Andes Mountains. And they found it in kind of your surface soils, your surface rocks, uh, which is 
astounding as well because obviously it couldn't have been millions of years. It wouldn't have much more layers on top of it than what it has. But they talk about they got this huge find whales and oyster beds and all these sea creatures, fish and, and all these, all this different marine life found on top of the mountain. So what's the conclusion? Well, their conclusion as they looked at it is that millions of years ago, this must have been underwater. But then what happened? The tectonic plate shifted and pushed up the mountain ranges. Now, I don't disagree that the tectonic plate shifted. I, th- I think they did. And these guys said relatively rapidly. I think they're relatively rapidly is a little slower than probably what actually happened. Because I think during the flood, as the Bible describes it, mountains were made low. Valleys were pushed up. The whole surface of the earth changed. Probably continued to change over a little time. And when you look at like the ideas of continental drift and how our continents seem to line up and it seems that they've separated and moved, I think that that probably happened for a time after the flood took place. But I think that the, the freezing of the Arctic's froze rapidly during the times of the floods. And, and there's evidence of that too, because when we dig in, we find seams of coal that contain organic material that would have been warm climate kinds of material on the earth at that time. And so there's a, a tremendous amount of evidence all over the world. Notice also, there's another detail within the finding in the New York Times article. Notice that it did not only contain sea creatures. We get astounded because you have fossils of sea creatures on top of the mountains. But just as important is the fact that there are also mice, rhinoceroses, other land-breathing mammals, fossils of them right in with the sea creatures. Because when you think about what it takes to make a fossil, a fossil isn't made just because an animal dies. It has to have certain things happen. That's why 95% of our fossils are marine fossils, because they die in the water. So if you've got all these fossils of these land animals in with the marine fossils, or just above them even, then what does it mean? If a deer dies in the woods, what happens? Well, some things eat it, and the bones lay there, and they rot, and eventually it's just gone. It doesn't turn into a fossil. If you have something like a flood and things die in the flood, they die, they sink to the bottom. And obviously land animals are going to sink more gradually than the sea creatures that already live in the water. And so they're going to end up on top of the, of the things just like they found here. And they're going to settle to the bottom and the layers of dirt that have been all stirred up from the flood are going to silt in over the top of them and they're going to crush them down and the weight of that's going to crush them and it's going to fossilize. Which means all those land animals had to die in a wet environment in order for them to have a fossil of those things. So actually when you think about it, 12 million years and, and mountains pushing up and animals living on the mountains after the sea creatures did, do not answer it. They don't answer why we would have all these fossils of these land animals in with the fossils of the sea creatures. What does answer it? A flood. When I was a kid and Mount St. Helens went off and I was living in eastern Washington, when, when Mount St. Helens erupted... And it took uh, Spirit Lake and blew it off the mountain, basically. And the Toodle River overflowed and became a huge mudslide. Stirred up all that water and then things resettled and everything. And you know what it looked like? It looked like it had taken millions of years. How long had it taken? Ten days. Because they're looking at layers and saying, look at all these layers of things. That would take so long with what's going on today in our world. Well, yes, it would. But in a flood, it might take a year. It might take a month. It might take a week. I've got some videos and some pictures and stuff on some things in my office, and they have this one picture where they show this old fossilized tree that's uncovered, and the ground has all these layers, 
And they say, you know what? Our textbooks tell us that these layers are all millions of years. But this one tree is existing through all of them. The point is that tree was set down in the flood and rapidly covered over and layer upon layer as the thing settled in and it happened quickly. You know what? That's exactly what we see all over our world. Well, we also see something else all over our world as we look at it from a social standpoint. And that is that, as I mentioned to you before, there's flood stories all over the world. Because I looked it up last night. I thought, you know, there's flood stories all over the world. I'm going to try to look some of them up. It kind of breaks it down by which continent that the flood stories are found on. And when it says there's flood stories all over the world, it really means there's flood stories all over the world. When you look at it here, it starts in Europe and it lists the Greek flood story. And then it actually tells the story to you. And then the Arcadian, the Samothrace, the Roman, the Scandinavian, the German, the Celtic, the Wiccish, the Lithuanian, the Transylvanian, Gypsy, Turkey. Then it goes to the Near East and says the Sumerian, the Egyptian, the Babylonian. Every ancient culture around the world has a story of the flood. The details often differ, but the flood story is literally all over the place. As we scrolled down through there, I stopped at North America and I said, what are our North American stories? And you know what they were? The Ojibwe has a flood story, and the Navajo, and the Apache, and the Nez Perce, and the Cree. All of our different tribes all had flood stories. And if you go to South America, they're all over there. They're, no, matter, no matter where you look, you go out to the islands, you go to the Philippines, all the cultures have stories of this flood. Why? Why would they have stories of the flood all over the world? Well, because it happened. <laughs> <laughs> that's why the same reason you find clam beds on mountains and, and land animals mixed in with them this really happened there's evidence of it everywhere well then lastly let's look at the effects of the worldwide flood as we consider some of the effects there's environmental changes we stop and we think well what kind of changes to the environment would have happened there's a theory that says you know the, the world was covered with a canopy later research i think kind of kind of drifts away from that a little bit now But when you look at the creation of the world at the beginning in Genesis 1, it talks about God separating the waters and the area between the waters he calls sky. It looks like there's a a water above the heavens and a water left on the earth. There's a canopy of water above that the sun would be on the outside of and it would filter the sun rays coming into the earth. And so the earth would have been like one big tropical environment, kind of like a greenhouse. There may be some biblical problems with that, and there's some scientific problems too. Some of the experiments that they've tested said uh, maybe that wouldn't work too well. Say, well, where would all the water have come from? The Bible says the water for the flood came from the windows of heaven were opened, and down came the water, and it says the fountains of the deep shot up through the land. So when you think about it, and all the mountains being brought low and other mountains being made high, there's volcanoes going off, there's all kinds of things happening. So he said, well, either one, that canopy that it's talking about was either denser clouds or a, or a thick canopy that came crushing down. That's a possibility. Also, the, with the fountains of the deep shooting forth, the volcanoes going off and stuff, it would be blasting all this hot water up into the air, and that would have formed more clouds thickly and been raining back down on the earth, and so that would have created it as well. You know, which one happened? I don't know. If it's the canopy... They say that if there was a canopy covering all the way around, then the oxygen levels would be different. And we actually have found uh, little air bubbles trapped in, in uh, fossilized tree sap. And within these air bubbles, they found an oxygen level that's like 50 times what our oxygen level is today. Higher oxygen levels would really facilitate the body healing faster and functioning better, but it also has some downsides that can be there too. So a lot of it's kind of speculation. But one thing we do know is there were definite environmental changes. We can tell 
from the things that we find at the Arctics. We know that that was at one time a tropical environment because we found animals that were frozen there with tropical food in their mouth. We found seams of coal that, that indicate that there was a vegetation that would grow in a warmer climate that was there. When you look at the environmental effects, absolutely there are environmental effects. Now, social changes, we do see some of those right off the bat. We see um, God institutes human government when you get up in the first parts of chapter 9. Cain, when questioned about his brother Abel, he said, am I my brother's keeper? In Genesis chapter 9, God answers the question, yes, you're your brother's keeper, at least to some extent. And so human government is a social change that takes place after the flood. We'll focus on that next week. Also, the, probably the biggest uh, change that we see is life spans. Before the flood, everybody or most everybody was living like 900 years plus. One of the things that we notice is that after the flood, our lifespans start to nosedive. Now, why is that? By the time we get to Psalm chapter 90 and verse 10, which was written by Moses, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So Moses, who lived to 120, acknowledged that the lifespan was about 70. If something amazing happens, 80, and then his was phenomenal at 120. But the lifespan starts to nosedive right at the time of the flood. People are, that are born after the flood only live to about 450. Now only, that sounds like a big number to us still, but recognize it's cut in half. And then if you continue to follow it, it takes another nosedive. It goes on about 450, kind of starts tapering down. And then you hit another time and it dives again. And you know when that time is? It's about the Tower of Babel. And so Babel, the lifespans go from being about 450 years tapering down to 200, and then by the time you get to Moses, there's 70. Well, what's changed? I think probably a number of things have changed. One is the environment's changed. The environment must have changed somewhat because in, in Genesis chapter 9, God tells man to start eating the animals. Apparently, we didn't eat the animals before that. Well, if that canopy theory is correct, radiation would have been filtered out before, but now it's not, so the sun rays are going to break down proteins in our body, and we need protein now. And so they're supposed to start eating meat. And so there's environmental differences that would add to the change. But there's also genetic differences that would add to the change also. You know, we talked a little bit ago about the mutations and things like that that happen genetically that, that would impact mankind over time. Well, a couple major things would impact mankind quickly. When you take all of mankind, you see within our genetic information, every gene that we have has a couple variations to it called alleles. And so when you look at the variations of that same gene that other people can have, when you, as long as you have a big gene pool, you still have access to all that information genetically within us. But if you take, of all the people that exist, take one man, his three sons, his wife and their wives, and everybody else dies, a huge part of the gene pool has just died, that we no longer have access to that part of the, the genetic information. The more variety you have, the less mutations you have. That would drastically affect our genetic makeup. And then if you look at the Tower of Babel where mankind is segregated and spread out all over the world, you just limited the gene pools from access to each other again. And so that also would be a, a point, what they call them uh, genetic bottlenecks. And so when it takes all this genetic information, brings it down to a bottleneck to where you only have this much down here, that drastically infects, affects us genetically as a species. The point is simply this. Why did we go from such long periods to such short 
time periods. I think it's a combination of things. I think we lost access to a lot of variation within our genetic makeup as humanity. That happened at the flood, and then it happened again at the Tower of Babel, and we see a drastic drop in our lifespans right at both of those events. And then there's also the environmental changes that we'd undergo now from the things that happened during the flood in the environment that would exist after it that would happen as well. And so, you know what? This is the tip of the iceberg on this stuff. But the point is, the things that we see recorded in the Bible, we also see all around us in the world in which we live as well. The evidence that is in the, that is in the fossil records and on our mountain peaks and in the legends and, in the, and the stories of other cultures all around the earth support the things that we see detailed for us within the inerrant word of God within the book of Genesis.